Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. This week on the Evolve Move Play podcast, our guest is Amos Rendow. Amos Rendow is one of the owners of Apex Movement and Parkour EDU. He's a leading thinker in the parkour community on breakfalls or ukemi as he calls them, as well as randori and many other aspects of, of parkour theory. He's an old friend of mine. We go back to 2009. I've stayed in his place. He stayed at mine. We've had lots of really interesting conversation over the years. Um, and I think he's one of the most interesting thinkers in the whole parkour community and a really amazing mover as well. So I'm really excited to share this with you guys. Without further ado, Amos Rendow. Bring it in like Brandon Douglas. Like, <laughs> hey, we're on. Like something like that. <laughs> One, two, three, four, and you're on. Amos Rendell, old friend of mine. Great to have you. Welcome on the podcast. Uh, how are you, man? Feeling good. How are you doing today? Good. I'm doing really well. So um, you are a parkour teacher, also deep background in martial arts. I know you've been playing around with dance, or at least were the last time I was chat uh, chatting with you. Um, you've been traveling the world, doing parkour stuff, done a lot of parkour competitions. What, what do you want the audience to know about you before we dig deep into uh, all these crazy topics? Mm. I, think you've, I think you put it straight. That's what my mouth's like right now. <laughs> uh, so I, I just, I, I'm gonna just tell people a story about you because I think it's funny and it's a good way to introduce you. Oh, great. So my first memory of you was at the Apex Movement Jam in 2011, I think. And we were hanging out with, uh, with Emily Sisson, then Justin Ganguly at a restaurant, like a little uh, burrito bar. And, uh, and, and he, he slash she was quizzing you um, on how to be homeless. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spreading the good word. Yeah, and so you're there with your, your long like uh, uh, <clears throat> Jedi braid and your ratty clothes telling people about how to uh, camp out on roofs. And, um, and I was like, oh man, this dude is a hippie. And I remember that. I remember you and both, both Tyson and you were pretty standoffish to me at first after that. <laughs> but then not long after that, you came and stayed with us. Like <clears throat> you came and slept on my couch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a respectful couch guy. Yeah, yeah. breaking rules. No, no, you're great. You're great. It's super good time. Really got to know you. And what's been funny to me over the years is that it's like, you know, in some ways you and I are really very different, right? Like I come from a, a hippie upbringing, kind of like a more square lifestyle now, um, really yeah. on the opposite ends politically. But like the things that we've gotten interested in movement have had this parallel over and over and over again. 
So. Also, interestingly, I come from a conservative background. Yeah, yeah. I went, I went the other direction. So me and you kind of just crossed the middle. <laughs> I've always found that. I've always found that charming about you, like stories about your parents. Yeah. And with your present, like more leaning conservative beliefs, I've always, I've always liked that. Yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny thing. But yeah, we've had these, uh, these opposite paths in some ways in life, yeah. and then when we it, don't even get in ferocious debates or anything. No, <laughs> we're really civil with each other. <laughs> we just accept it. It's just the who we are. But uh, yeah, but then with the movement stuff, what's been interesting is like, you know, I started researching break falling, like noticing that my students were were not comfortable falling down the same way that some of the experienced parkour athletes were. So I went and read break falling stuff from gymnastics and circus and started playing with all these things. And then I run into you and you've got, you're super excited about parkour kemi. So um, let's start with there. What is parkour kemi? I know you just released a, a, uh, a, a program on it. So what does that mean to you? And, and how did you go into that? Yeah, uh, I named it that pretty much as a nod of gratitude to the big, two biggest sources of my inspiration. Um, you said you were looking into circus and gymnastics. At that time, I had been doing a lot of martial arts. And in those early days, you can probably relate to this, but <clears throat> when we were all watching YouTube and just trying stuff, people were getting nasty injuries and taking really bad falls. And uh, I remember just one, like I was the only person in the community that wasn't getting hurt. And one day it really clicked when I had a really bad fall that I came out of completely okay. Um, I realized, whoa, like my martial arts background is keeping me safe through this practice. And so it seems so simple, right? But you probably remember back in those days, I think I did a, a seminar in 2010 on this mm -hmm. topic at Parkour Visions. And I almost had to convince people that we need to do this. Now it's a no brainer, of course, and I can move on to other things, but that first seminar, like people weren't on board, which is hilarious. But um, once I realized how impactful it was on my training, I just started going to town, put stuff in the lab, trying new things. Um, I discovered that a lot of stuff I learned from martial arts uh, had a lot of bad habits involved with it um, because now we're on concrete, we're around complex shapes, so these techniques needed to be changed. Uh, so yeah, I just started um, piecing drills and methods and techniques together. And uh, because parkour, the training on hard surfaces and complex shapes, mixed with my background in martial arts, where the term ukemi comes from, um, which is, it's not just the art of falling in martial arts, it also involves getting a realistic attack. Um, but because most falling um, practice falls under the banner of Ukimi. I adopted that term to give a nod of gratitude. So yeah, I mashed those two together basically to make the statement, hey, this is a new practice. Um, and a lot of these other things like martial arts, gymnastics and such, there are a lot of bad habits. And in parkour, we're, um, you know, this is a very demanding practice when it comes to falling because we're um, doing high speeds, hard surfaces, complex shapes. So yeah, I, I felt like it was a new project to undertake and called it that. Sweet. So let me back up there for a second. That's something you said it was interesting. You said that you had some resistance from the community when you started trying to teach people about falling specifically. How do you think people have uh, been resistant to that? I don't know. I think in, in my experience, a lot of movement communities treat falling like this thing that we just don't talk about. Like, oh, don't, don't talk about that. Just, just don't do that. And, and that's kind of what the attitude was. And so I don't know if it was a lot of resistance as much as it was confusion. Like, should I spend my time doing that? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe more so, more so that. 
Yeah, I, I, Brandon had a, a strange conversation with a friend who's really into like came from a strength con and conditioning perspective, and he was all about like you know you never fail a rep, and he was like taking that perspective into the world of what we were doing. It was like you know you should never train failure. You're teaching yourself to fail. Mm, yeah. The house that that was very strange to me at the time but it really like it made me think more and more about that and i was like well no you have to fail right like what i tell people is that it, when you learn to fall with grace then you can fly without fear and the more that you uh have that sense that you can buffer the 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 impacts of a landing of uh mm. of something going not according to plan the more um reckless you can be with your practice the more uninhibited you can be yeah yeah the way i see it is that um if you're familiar with the term deep learning being yeah. able to reach far beyond your um, present skill set uh that's what allows you to do in a physical practice if you do that you're risking injury you're risking falling and yeah. it allows you just to be a little bit more careless and try things that are beyond what you're able to do and, and i think it spikes your learning curve for that reason yeah, actually, that I, I think you pointed out why there was a little bit of resistance, and that's something I do recall is people saying you shouldn't practice the the wrong way. So, yeah, my my opinion on that is absolutely ninety percent of your training shouldn't be falling, or I mean, depending on what you're doing. But uh, my my whole position is at least like integrate some of this stuff into your warmups, or you know. A, a practice session here and there getting down a new falling technique um, is really powerful it's not going to change you know if you get a hundred perfect pre precisions and you practice you know maybe 10 slip out slip outs from those precisions like it's not going to affect your precision you're going to be fine so yeah um it's interesting you mentioned uh the term black swan and our kind of like pre preamble mm -hmm. i wondered yeah uh, before we got started here and uh, one of Nassim Taleb, who came up with that term, one of his terms is anti-fragility. And I really mm -hmm. like that term. In his book, Anti-Fragility, he talks about the idea that failure is information. And that if you have any organic system and you're not exposing it to failure frequently enough, it's actually becoming more fragile. So like, mm -hmm. yeah. I, uh, I talk about this idea of danger versus risk, right? Danger is what might happen if something went wrong, how bad it could be. And risk is the likelihood that something's going to go wrong. And I intentionally practice in ways where I'm going to fail, where the, where the danger is low. Like I do high risk stuff when danger is low so that my body has, has a lot of ability to react and knows exactly what's going to happen if something goes wrong. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's, that's what I spend a lot of time doing. And then in those moments, like you were telling me in our pre-talk, uh, when you do that really high precision, yeah. you know, up in the trees or something, um, you're, you're so much more, you're not, a, you're not a stiff mm -hmm. and you're more present. You're less likely to make mistakes. Interestingly, when you practice failure more often, uh, you fail less in my experience and with my students. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, uh, you've mapped out, right. You've mapped out where that parameter space is of all the things that could happen. One, uh, uh, one idea I've been playing with a lot recently is this idea of degrees of freedom, um, which is something that comes from Nikolai Bernstein. But if you think about controlling the movement, there's all these areas of things that you don't want to have happen or things that, that are going to take you away from the way that you want the movement to happen. But then there are things that are redundant, degrees of freedom that are redundant that achieve the same end. 
So you want to find all the variation that allows you to, to succeed. And then you also want to be able to control all the, you, you want to be able to bias towards the, the variations that are not going to have bad consequences. So when you see someone jump to a, a precision where like one side is a very far fall down, but the other side's safe, you know, basically as long as they're between landing precisely and falling off on the safe side, they're okay. Right. And so I think part of what we do as we're really cultivating the higher level of this practice is we start visualizing all of the ways in which we could have control of the situation, even if the ideal doesn't happen. Yeah, totally. Or it's interesting because up until now, and I don't know how this is in some of the communities you frequent, but in parkour, a lot of people, even though they got out of this phase of being resistant, yeah, it seemed like a lot of them were just of the opinion, like, I don't really need to train that stuff because I'm, I've been fine so far. You know, you'll have these really advanced athletes say, hey, I made it this far. But the way I see it is, that it's just a process of natural selection unfortunately where you know for every person who has like had a you know a reasonable amount of maybe luck coming out of these nasty falls there's like 10 other people that don't even do parkour anymore unfortunately and so that's what it's about is practicing in, in these ways so that you can kind of get outside the pool of natural selection and like protect your career or protect your body you know the things that are important to you how do you buffer failure is how I like to think of it, right? Or how do you yeah, yeah, yeah. more robust the bad things that can happen? Yeah, yeah. I think that practice is, is, is really powerful. And, and I actually, I use you as an example in my seminars because the thing that was really interesting to me is, you know, around the last time we were training together, you were doing a lot of competitions and you were performing really well in the competitions. But like on a skill for skill, power for power level, you often weren't quite as as impressive as some of the athletes that you were uh, on the podium with, right? Yeah, yeah, I had to be creative. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know, you'd be you'd be right up there with Dylan, Dylan Baker, right? He's a good friend of ours, and I'm pretty sure Dylan's standing broad jumps like a foot further than yours. Am I correct? Oh, uh, probably five. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you guys, do everything better than me faster climb-ups, you know, faster at running. If we just ask them to run in a straight line, could do a bigger column precision. Yeah. I just asked them to do it in, yeah. in things. But what it seemed like to me is when I watched you run, you could run at 80% of your top speed and 80% of your power through a really complex course where a lot of people were maybe operating at 60%. So even though they had a higher ceiling, they couldn't reach it because they had to they had to hold themselves back more from the fear of falling. And the fact that you were so unafraid of falling allowed you to operate with, with a lot less break on basically. Yeah. Yeah. When you uh, run an obstacle course, often you're judging probabilities of success on a certain technique and how you might combo that into a next. And yeah, I see that a lot when people are scared to fall, especially with little prep time before an obstacle course, they take the easier road because there's so much uncertainty there. Yeah. And as you buffer your ability to fail, you get to this point where you can make it, it ups your probability of success in those situations um, because you're not worried about little things that can happen. So yeah, definitely. That's uh, a good observation. Yeah. I think it's a really powerful thing for people to realize, you know, if you <clears throat> expose yourself to failure, you know, in parkour, in life, et cetera, then, um, and you don't become robust to it, then you can't operate as uninhibitedly as you could. And when you're free, when you're really free to move, 
you're free to do whatever. It's massively powerful. Yeah, and we're talking a lot about the efficiency of it, um, you spiking your learning curve, things like that. But I think my favorite thing about that perspective is just how it changes the attitude in training sessions. Uh, also, back when we first started, things were really, because people were just watching YouTube videos and they were having nasty falls, things were very tense, at least in my community. Yeah, yeah. I remember just feeling a lot of fear and pushing through. And, you know, my first Kong to Cat, um, where you vault over a wall and you land on the face of another wall. Um, sorry, I'm not telling you that. That's for your, any audience members that don't know what that is. Uh, it, my first one of those, I remember it took me 30 minutes to build up to that and try a bunch of times and back out, hesitate, super stiff. Um, and I just don't like that experience. And after putting a lot of time into studying falling, my training session is more laughing and joking around with your friends, like trying something you know you can't do just to make a joke out of it. And, um, you know, even when I'm trying something intense, it's just, it's more of a place of calmness and less a place of like anger or tense fear, things like that. So I think that's another huge benefit is just your experience of movement becomes lighter, a better vibe. Absolutely. Have you noticed that sometimes when you have a fall, and you don't get hurt, it automatically sort of lightens you. It's like, oh, <laughs> the bad thing happened and it, it wasn't that bad. And now I, now I can let go of some of my inhibitions. You know, it's funny, I haven't felt that in a long time because now it's of course to me, but mm -hmm. I still see that in my students. I still see that moment where it was really hard for them to do something. The falling technique that we had, you know, Put a lot of repetition into came through just like I said it would and then after they got that out of the way exactly that they're just like oh that's the worst that can happen and I can deal with that perfect and then they usually nail it the next time but at this point when I fall I don't think about that stuff at all I yeah I'm just like <laughs> of course <laughs> uh, maybe I'll laugh if it was a funny fall or I don't know <laughs> yeah yeah interesting that's cool so then um I want to get into the mindset stuff. Let's hold that for a second. And I wanted to ask you, you said something earlier about the bad habits that, that, that martial arts have developed. I'm interested to hear you expand on how you've taken the falls from that you learned in the martial arts community and then adapted it and expanded on it in kind of your model of what, of how someone should train falling when they're in these complex and hard environments. Yeah. So trying to stir up some drama. All right. I see <laughs> Um, yeah, when I, when I first started martial arts, I started in Aikikai Aikido, um, and that's where a majority of the falling technique I learned is from. And, uh, there's, there are variations as an example of entering the forward roll, uh, with starting on your wrist and then making a half circle all the way around to your opposite hip going across the spine. Um, some people scoop the arm through, uh, and, uh, what I've found over the years is that when you're dealing with hard surfaces, there's just no room for error when it comes to striking your AC joint on um, the top of your shoulder on hard surfaces in a high speed roll. So uh, not only have I just had a bunch of stories of people learning the roll who have broken collarbones or separated AC joints because of that technique, but also if you look at maybe, so you're one of them, interesting. Um, and then also with slick surfaces, sometimes that scoop is just not very precise. Your hand can slip out. Uh, so one of the early things that I found is that um, with the forward roll, it's best to use 
both hands, as much muscle in both your arms as possible to guide the ground over your shoulder to your back. Uh, and um, that's something that, you know, a lot of people come from martial arts, really struggle to break those habits. It's like just so ingrained. Um, so that's, that's one of the big ones for sure. Um, also break falling. Um, I know this maybe is a point of contention between the two of us, but um, I find that a lot of martial artists have break fall form that's more geared towards mats. Like for instance, falling flat back. Yeah. And uh, when you get out of the dojo, when you get outside to hard surfaces and complex shapes, you have to deal with strike points, um, certain bones on your body. Um, you also have to deal with um, striking a hierarchy of priorities when it comes to protecting things like your head, neck, spine. And so um, I have not been able to find a good reason why you should go straight to your back because any sort of protrusions, like let's say there's just a little root on the ground, yeah. you just went straight spine into that root. Um, whereas if you're on your side, on the meaty part, the soft tissue pathway of a breakfall, you know, maybe that root's still probably going to hurt but you're protecting the vitals. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's some different things like that. Um, and then also, you know, being on mats in a dojo can give you some funny habits like purposely slapping the mat, which in, in some cases on mats, that can maybe dissipate some of those forces, but it, it becomes almost excessive and you'd never want to actually do that on concrete um, or packed dirt or rocks or whatever. So um, there's just a bunch of various stuff like that um, where we have to start to change the form in order to deal with strike points and some of the real shapes you'll find outside in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, uh, perhaps my stuff is updated since the last time we chatted, but I also don't like to have people drill going to the flat back. Um, cool. Always try to get people on their side. And nice. um, for the same reason, because that margin of error for protecting your central nervous system is just so much smaller when you're potentially rolling your head back, like trying to control your head going here is so much harder than pillowing yeah. on your shoulder. Yep. That's another reason for sure. Um, you got that, that shoulder helmet. <laughs> yeah. I had an interesting experience with that recently. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but, um, so I always teach people to keep, I've, or I've traditionally taught people to keep their hand below 45 degrees on a break fall, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to up by their, their hand here, because I found that below like, 45. Yeah. Because I found that, yeah, the shoulder, like I feel like I could uh, dislocate my shoulder if my hand's up here. Mm -hmm. What I found was that um, that's kind of specific to having broad shoulders and that for female students, they can't, get a, they can't get a cushion to protect their head unless their arm is much higher relatively. And then at the same time, they're much less at risk of dislocating the shoulder by being in that mm -hmm. position because the shoulders are so much narrower. Mm. I was curious if you noticed that as well. Uh, I actually don't, I almost don't teach anyone to get up towards 90 degrees. Yeah. Um, I, I actually say you shouldn't go above 90 degrees for the reason that you said. Mm -hmm. um, but the head helmet there, um, or sorry, the, the shoulder helmet or the hand helmet, things like that, that's super advanced. Um, I've seen people fall from 10 feet to break falls and still have the strength for their head not to whiplash. Um, and this side position is also very controlled because you're tucking your chin kind of down to the side mm -hmm. as opposed to that straight flat back where you can whiplash back. Uh, and so that's only really for people who are training at heights that need to know if for some reason your last resort ends up being the break fall. You, it's a, again, it's a hierarchy and your priority is your head. So then maybe go a little higher with the arm and then so that you can use that. But 
for most people, I say kind of down in between 90 degrees and 30 degrees is where your arm should be um, because you don't need to worry about your head. Interesting. But um, I have, because I don't have a ton of advanced students needing to practice the shoulder helmet or the arm helmet or whatever, um, I haven't noticed patterns as you've just described. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was an interesting discovery for me. So something to play with. Um, yeah. The other one, the other martial arts habit that really, I think, doesn't translate well to it to our environment is the, the driving the heel up on the, uh, on, the, on the roll. So when you roll and you split your legs and drive one leg high, have you noticed that we're working with martial artists? Uh, so this is a split step entrance to the forward roll. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you do see a lot of that in martial arts, especially when we're talking about a situation where you're actually using a fall. Mm -hmm. um, that's maybe not so important, but I do see some value in that. Um, when it comes to the assisted dive roll. Okay. So um, for anyone who doesn't, isn't familiar with that term, uh, assisted dive roll is a situation where your hips and head height are level. And if you tried to dive roll, your upper body would come below your lower body and this is called a suitcase. And so your body just gets sandwiched and it's really, really dangerous and painful. Uh, so in those situations, because your hips aren't high enough for a dive roll, you just throw one leg down to the ground not to land on one leg, but in order to pop your hips up to guide your hips to the correct height for a dive roll. That's why it's called assisted dive roll. Um, and in that situation, um, one of the worst things you can do is actually not drive your heel. The heel drive facilitates the, the right rotation direction. Whereas if you let your leg drop down after one leg has gone to the ground, it's actually fighting the direction you wanna go and yeah. could make the roll more difficult, cause you to land on top of your shoulder or whatever. So, I would say in some cases, yes, it's not a good um, practice for them just to be doing that on the flat ground. But once they get up to the assisted dive roll heights, then, then yeah, it's ideal to drive your heel. So I haven't seen too much of that. I noticed that when we're diving through things, the big danger is clipping your heel on the top. And if someone has habitually driven the heel up, then they're, uh, then they're going to be you know, putting themselves in danger because they're increasing the, that, that size of their body as it's moving through the object. Yeah, yeah, totally. It, the, the ultimate is to be able to control the height of the hips and then be able to put your body in whatever position you want. And the um, feet relative to the hips, right? Yeah, yeah, because you can use that heel as kind of like a, an engine for how high you want to put your hips. And then to be able to dial that back and like have some low-lying obstacles so that you can bring it back down is important. But I guess I haven't seen too many bad habits to where I've seen people clipping feet um, just yet, but... I could see that because often, you know, in a dojo with no obstacles, flat ground, you can get away with some crazy stuff, you know, swinging your feet up really high and unnecessary break falls and whatnot for sure. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So um, another one I wanted to talk to you about that I was curious about as far as break falls is the use of the hand, right? You talked about the slap. So I, I remember thinking about this a lot because I came from a martial arts background as well. And you know, there's this idea that basically as the body impacts, the hand slaps, or even the hand slaps at the end of the impact. And, uh, so, you know, you, uh, you introduced me to this, this, uh, this physics um, of, of falling idea, right? That the, uh, the impact is, or that the wounding energy of the impact is proportional to the area and time over which it's distributed. It's a really useful tech uh, concept. I always demonstrated it by punching people. <clears throat> Right? versus coaching them. You can see the yeah. and the abrupt 
nature of it versus a more prolonged push. That's so your style of showing up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyways, um, yeah, I'm curious for you where you like, how you like the hand to interact with the ground. Yeah, yeah. So there are also a lot of variations there as well. Um, if it's a low impact fall, I find that the arm can play a really interesting role as antenna. Uh, so as long as you're not posting out or bending this arm behind you, which is pretty much the, the first things you're trying to get out of a student's muscle memory right off the bat, as long as they're out here, but coming back, you can kind of feel the ground before you hit and that can help you adjust your body and let your arms slide out or get out of there. Um, and I find that pretty valuable in some cases for me. I've definitely used that. I just saw actually three days ago, a student in my gym used that. They fell from about, one of our advanced students fell from about six feet and he put his arm behind him and in while he was in the air, everything slowed down for me and I was just like, oh no, don't leave the arm there. That's not gonna be good. But he did it just enough at an angle to where he could kind of feel the ground because he couldn't really see the ground. And so he just touched the ground, got his arm out, and it ended up being completely fine. So um, in, in some cases, I've, I use it as an antenna. Um, in other cases, if you're looking for maximum surface area, then yes, you're looking for good timing where your entire body hits at the same time. And actually what you'll find is the, the arm, the hand will bounce off the ground. Um, and this is natural. You shouldn't be trying to keep your arm on the ground. Um, if you watch a lot of break falls in slow motion on concrete or hard surfaces, the, the hand will bounce and that's natural to let the energy keep moving more time. Um, but it's not a slap. It's not a deliberate smack. So those are two of the, the major ways that I kind of see the arm um, playing a role. Let's see if there's anything else. There is this one break fall that is incredibly soft where depending on your orientation, you can kind of reach around mm -hmm. um, and grab the, I, I would use the word grab the ground before your body hits. Mm -hmm. And if you have the strength, you can slow down the fall before your body hits and land actually very softly, but that's some pretty advanced stuff. Yeah, I think that, that would be the, that would be the third way I would say is also actually slowing your fall down. Yeah. I mean, I think when you get into really advanced break falls, you start to, uh, start to essentially um, move into the territory of acrobatics where you can cartwheel off things, you can flip off things, you can handspring off things in order to control and yeah. get your weight back underneath you. Uh, there's a great, um, uh, there's a, the Georgian cat, I can't remember his name, but look up the Georgian cat, he's a judo player, who's famous for basically doing cartwheels or flips off of people's throws and landing back. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's interesting. Um, this is a new thing I included in the online course that you mentioned I just released is I've always seen um, when you look at the physics of falling, I've seen some acrobatic skills as absolutely valuable for creating more time or more surface area. Yeah. And uh, one of the biggest ones is what I call parkour auxinho. And uh, that comes, the word auxinho comes from capoeira which is kind of like a mini cartwheel. Okay. And what I've found is that a very common falling scenario, not only for my own experience, but I'm seeing show up in a lot of videos and in my students, it are these situations where you need to fall, but there's an obstacle in your fall zone. And one of the best things you can do is get your hips up and over the thing, depending on how high it is. And that usually involves some variation of a hip height in a cartwheel. Yeah. 
you mentioned. And so uh, I got pretty into finding out what all of these little, you know, capoeira or breaking and different acrobatic movements that you can use and what's their place in falling. And I had a pretty big breakthrough um, where I realized that a lot of this stuff where you wouldn't want to use it in a high impact fall, um, the butt roll, for example, butt roll is just a little roll across your butt cheeks. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't want to do that in a high impact fall, but when maybe you barely trip or you're being lazy or you're just in kind of like a weird orientation, you can use that instead. And so I realized that um, my idea of all these different, and I haven't talked about this yet on here, but all these different continuums of falling techniques that link together, um, they are altered by the speed or the impact level in which you enter the fall. And so, um, whereas one continuum might be a lot of rolls for higher speed falls, I realized that there are a lot of little acrobatic movements like cartwheels and um, kind of similar things to macacos and such. Yeah. that link together in a similar fashion um, for low impact falls. And, um, and I included that in the course as well, just because for beginners, I think it's very valuable to develop a relationship with the ground and be able to enter and exit the ground in a ton of different possible ways in order to buffer for failure and have um, lots of options. Yeah, I think options is key. Actually, when you were talking about uh, kicking the heel up, it reminded me of that. I think one of the big mistakes that I personally made, I think a lot of us made, was starting to sort of bifurcate everything into the right way and the wrong way to do things, rather than like the contextual way that works right here. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's like heel drive is bad when you're diving un uh, through an object. It's good when you're doing a, a recovered dive roll, right? Uh, right. It's like if I want to do a really quick uh, flip, you know, front flip on flat ground with nothing around me, driving my heel up can be really fast and quick. If I want to go over something, a strong heel drive can drive my head down towards the thing that I'm trying to get away from. Mm, yeah. Same kind of idea of contextual movement. Um, yeah, yeah. So that, that's just an interesting thing to play with. Yeah, uh, we, uh, I feel like we could get dive really deep into this uh, this break falling stuff, but I think it'd work a lot better if we were actually able to be in person and demonstrate some of us, because you know, all these details make <laughs> yeah. sense to us, but the audience is probably sorry. right. What the hell is going on? So, yeah, I've actually never described my unifying theory of Ukimi without some sort of like visuals, at least yeah. like point out the height of the hips and the head and whatnot. And it's, I find it to be really difficult to do with words for sure. Yeah, yeah. So we'll have to get together and, 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 and maybe do that sometime. That'd be fun. So, okay, let's, um, uh, what I wanted to ask you, let's go broader and more philosophical for a, sec uh, for a second. Um, I know nice. you, you have a, a view about movement that's connected to kind of your your life uh, your life philosophy as well, right? You know, checking out Amos.com, we've got information technology next to next to uh, to Randori and 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 Ukemi. So, what is it that really is the central why of your practice? Like, why? What motivates you to continue these practices? And what do you think the the real aim to be aimed at is? Yeah, yeah, I've noticed uh, parkour gets me a lot of attention from girls, and um, that's about it, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, same for you, right? Well, that's that's just evolutionary biology, right? It's spreading the genes. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I'm doing a better job, though. <laughs> you keep practicing, uh, but you just haven't succeeded yet. <laughs> um, you, are you referring to an article I wrote? Um, uh, quite a few years ago on on movement science and uh is that what you're asking about 
Not particularly, uh, but this is a central yeah. question for me. Everything in my own yeah. life is about the why of movement practice. And I know that that's something yeah. I've thought about a lot as well. And so just curious. If you know, yeah. Um, I think a lot of the why for me even originates in my discovery of parkour and what I was doing with my life at that time. And that is when I was studying Aikikai Aikido, uh, I just found that I had this conviction for harmony with my surroundings, whether that be an attacker or um, problems in my life. I just uh, I've always wanted to be able to not be clumsily stumbling through my existence, but actually be connected and have a strong relationship with objective reality. And uh, I think when I found out what parkour was, I realized that it's just martial arts without the attacker it's the same philosophy for me it's um it's preparation it's harmony it's connection and uh yeah i think that has stuck with me this entire time um and maybe is the reason why i've never been one of the burnouts like you'll see on facebook every once in a while some veteran parkour person just like yeah i'm done with parkour i can't do this anymore <laughs> and i've always been perplexed by that so i just don't know what that feels like because I've always had a fire for movement and I think it's because yeah my underlying motivation is just to find this harmony um, so yeah that probably has informed a lot of my decisions to study falling because that's part of that idea of harmony for me is to be be able to be elegant when I slip on ice or fall off my bicycle or get hit by a train or fall off my motorcycle I want to be able to deal with the things that are going to happen in life in an elegant way so yeah i guess that's maybe in a nutshell um what what motivates me it's almost you could one way to describe that might be that that it's a practice of being able to take on hard things and make them effortless or graceful yeah yeah that's part of it that's part of it for sure what else, the way that you're the terminology of like harmony that doesn't I'm not sure that maps right to something that 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 fits in my little cognitive system, right? So I'm, I'm um, curious. And when you talk about martial arts, you know, like I come from Muay Thai, and I don't <laughs> Muay Thai, at least as it's been experienced in the West, has a philosophy like Aikido, right? They're quite different. I think martial arts are very are very diverse philosophically. And this yeah. is an interesting question for me because people in the beginning, you know, you remember the the forum era of parkour. Uh, people talked a lot about the philosophy. I heard Julie Angel say recently, you know, parkour is a, is a philosophy with a physical practice. But I feel like nobody's ever been very good at articulating what that philosophy actually is. It's, a, it's an embodied philosophy. It's not an abstracted philosophy at this stage. Yeah, it's, it is kind of sad that you don't see as much talk on that subject within the parkour community anymore. But um, I think part of it is that there can be a lot of different reasons for doing this and a lot of different philosophies that will produce a lot of different movement styles. Um, and I guess if I were to look at Muay Thai, so I did Muay Thai for a while as well, um, which is to me like less a harmony. Um, for me, like if I could choose of any altercation, I would want it to happen in a way that was like you said, effortless to, to, to defend myself effortless and, um, you know, with as little energy as possible, as little impact as possible, and also protecting my attacker, ideally. I would like that. Um, but, you know, there are times where you have to find a solution on the other side of the spectrum, 
and maybe use something that's a little more brute force. But I guess my goals are leaning towards the harmony and the more like effortless solutions, whether that's an attacker or whether that's, um, you know, tripping up the stairs or, you know, some bicyclist just flies out in front of me, just the things that happen in life. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess that's what I mean by that harmony is bringing in Aikido and Muay Thai and comparing them is um, ideally I like this solution where it's, it seems like more mastery to me to be able to do it like water as opposed to like brute force. Mm -hmm. But water can flow and water can fra crash. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, sure, like sure. The way that I've been thinking about this stuff recently is, you know, I've been very influenced by Jordan Peterson and Nassim Taleb. And then that's led me down the road of reading like Nikolai Bernstein and, and some of the stuff on, on motor learning theory and all of it. Uh, and John Boyd from, uh, are you familiar with John Boyd's OODA loop and some of the yeah. things from John Boyd? All this stuff to me, it's like essentially about this idea that essentially human beings can either get, we can develop ourselves more or we can atrophy. Like there's only, there's no stasis. You're either growing or you're, you're atrophying. And within that, you need some combination of, 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 of nurturing, let's say, and of challenge, right? You need to push yourself to your edge, but not so far to your edge that you're constantly being overwhelmed, right? You're anti-fragile, but only to a degree. You become more anti-fragile by taking on enough stress. Or like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow. Flow is the point where you're at the, under high challenge combined with high competence. And I could use a little atrophy in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I've been going hard. Slowing down. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I've been, I'm pretty good at the Yang style of practicing, right? Like lately I've been thinking, how do I create more of a, of a, some more yin practices to balance it? Especially when I was just in Europe and doing all these crazy jumps, um, I came back and I was like, you know, I have no, I don't know how to, to, to treat myself nicely. <laughs> like, what does that look like? So I'm trying to like, you know, I've got my bone broth right here. I just got that done. I've got a, uh, Epsom salt baths, like just little things, little rituals that I can start bringing in that can bring me into that more yin state. Um, what would you say? Um, you said that you just went on this high level performance, uh, spree. And so it sounds like you haven't been doing so much to treat your body and really focus on the recovery aspects. You've just been going hard. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is one of the elements that was a driver of that allowed you to sustain that for a long period of time and have that success? Hmm. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I mean, there's been a few things that have been going on with me because I had, uh, I had chronic fatigue issues and IBS. I remember that. Yeah. And that, um, you know, so what, so basically eating food and eating plenty of carbohydrates and, uh, and, and doing bone broth over the winter, the last few winters and, and meditation to heal my gut all helped. Um, and a little, uh, you know, just, just different things to try and get my gut healed has, has really helped yeah. once my digestion was really in better order. It's like, that's, that's the center of nourishing yourself, right? food, food nourishes you. And if your body doesn't digest it well, it's really hard for you to recover. So I think yeah. that, that that's slowly been coming back online and my body's slowly been kind of saying, okay, cool. You're, you're, 
you're feeding me now, I can let you have some of the stuff that you've been striving for for a long time. Nice. Good, man. So that's been, that's been cool. Yeah, I'll probably do a little, a little uh, kind of solo podcast about that because I want to make this more about the guests. But that's, that's what's been going yeah. on. Nice, nice. So yeah, so now still trying to get smarter about that stuff coming home. Yeah, that's the, that's the backbone of all this stuff. I, I've had a similar experience. Uh, you know, I remember hitting a wall at the age of like 28 or so, um, touring with a van full of parkour people that would just go hard for six days a week. Yeah. And that's when I realized I just could not keep that rhythm. Uh, but since then, you know, tons of experimentation with my diet and finding out what's optimal for me has allowed me to really turn that upside down and uh, find those, high, you know, those high level performance strides as well. What's been um, the big, the big things that have helped you with your diet? Uh, for me, it's avoiding at all costs, all the fad diet stuff and media <laughs> and conducting science on yourself Sure. Yeah. Uh, because they're just nutrition is a young science. It's incredibly complicated. And, you know, you might be able to glean like a 2% upgrade out of like something somebody wrote that you read online, but you're going to make much bigger strides if you just conduct good science on yourself. And so I'm a huge advocate of, um, you know, journaling and meticulously tracking a lot of your experience while experimenting with different sorts of diets. And that has been huge for me, definitely. Cool, yeah, that's, a, I think a lot of people like to get excited, this is my own experience, you get excited about the potential to make a change and you, 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 you don't have any patience to do it. So you jump in and you throw everything about some new approach at yourself. And often you have like some nice results right away, but often there's a, there's a flip side. Um, mm -hmm. Like, uh, I went, you know, I went, let's say, paleo, uh, low carb, intermittent fasting, um, to and and with calorie restriction in 2010, um, beginning of 2000, or uh, yeah, 2009, 2010, I cut 20 pounds off, it was great, and then over the course of the next year, I had thyroid problems, my body was cold all the time, I tore ligaments in both of my feet. Um, your Achilles, right? Yeah, that, well, that's the end of the story. Subluxated my oh. <laughs> had a panic attack during the first competition and had two back spasms. And then I started to heal from all of that. And then at the end of it, I tore my Achilles tendon. Okay. So uh, I'm, you know, all those strategies are useful for the right person at the right time. But too much of them, plus too much stress, plus too much things will take your body apart. And so I think that what's really important for people is to get that baseline, you know? Mm -hmm. How does my body feel? What am I actually doing? What's going into my body right now? And then change one thing. Mm -hmm. That's really hard to do. Like you said, that takes a lot of patience and you have to be dedicated because especially at first, if you have low energy and low motivation and you just want to give up so easily, um, you have to push through and isolate certain things. You can't, you know, if you just overhaul your diet and you make all these changes, not only is that going to be hard to keep, but you can't be scientific about the results. So yeah, I'm a huge advocate of just slow little changes. You know, it took me maybe five years 
I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I definitely made a lot of mistakes and failed a lot of diets, but it took me five years to really dial in what I consider my optimal diet. So yeah, it's important. It takes a lot of patience though. Just my little thing, if there's one, one change that most people could make, they'd be really, you know, relatively simple and that will help almost everyone's health. It's just don't drink soft drinks. <laughs> yeah. That's it. It's a good start. Good start for sure. Just, that's just junk that's going into your body. And, uh, and it's a very simple change. It's a one thing change, but sometimes people are getting 400, 500 calories a day from right. food, uh, from something that's extraordinarily acidic. You know, you put your tooth in co uh, Coca-Cola and it'll dissolve overnight. But yeah. Anyways, uh, that's yeah, enough that on diet. <laughs> Do you talk about diet a lot on here? I don't. Well, okay. actually, no, I have had uh, Stefan Guillen on, who's, uh, who's an expert in neurobiology and, um, and, uh, and, and the obesity epidemic and why people overeat. Mm -hmm. And so we had a long conversation about that and how it impacted cool. all those things about, about understanding human motivation. Uh, nice. But other than that, yeah, it's not one of my primary topics. So, cool. so I wanted to ask you, in addition to being a parkour athlete, you have a, a long-term martial arts background. I know you also picked up dance. I actually had your one of your dance instructors at Return to the Source this year, um, Alex. Oh, yeah, that's right, Alex. Alex is a good guy. Um, I love Alex, yeah. And, and so I'm wondering how you look at parkour in relationship to a broader movement practice and how that broader movement practice informs the way you do parkour, how those two things interrelate for you or how they interact with this broader philosophy of what movement is for you, how that connects to life. Yeah, I think uh, for me, I, I have trouble drawing lines between all this stuff. It always actually seemed odd to me to use the word parkour, um, just because it felt like it really was a part of my identity in so many ways. And, and with martial arts, like I already explained, the same philosophy of harmony with my surroundings is applied through parkour and martial arts. And so dance is the same thing. It's just more for me... Um, uh, an expression, a creativity, um, you know, more, less preparation, more fun. And I don't see any sort of line between dance and parkour, for example, or dance and martial arts even. Um, and I think that's actually a really untapped area that I've, I've tried to play with, but I've been so strapped down with responsibilities over the last few years. But I would love to just see dance become more three-dimensional mm -hmm. um, and get up off the flat ground. And so there have been a couple of times where I've had a little bit of time to play with that and just like try to choreograph some stuff amidst like a really complex array of obstacles. Um, and yeah, ultimately I just find that movement in general is this magic pill that, um, you know, you, we were talking about diet a little bit, but also exercise is free. And if you just move your body a little bit each day, that's insane the impact it can have on your life and your mental health, so many things. And so, the way I want to approach that is I don't want to do things that are boring, um, that are easy to make excuses to do. I want to do things that are like, you know, I can't wait to go to dance class. Um, I can't wait to go downtown with my friends and climb on some stuff. I can't wait to go learn a new movement from ninjutsu or whatever. That's the sort of direction I want my movement to go. It's stuff that I can't wait to do. I'm really excited to. And it's even better when all those things enhance each other. So some of the balance or even some of the falling positions or some of the connections I get to the ground through dance inform my training of parkour Kimmy and my training of parkour. And um, the agility 
and the the roots that I put through the ground learning parkour and what that gives me there translates into martial arts where I have better center of balance and I can move better. Um, so I guess that's kind of my overview look of all these things and the roles they play in my life yeah. is their connectedness and, and the value of just being fun. I remember um, in the early days of the parkour community, there was this question, is parkour a martial art? And, <laughs> and I, I ran into this concept of fuzzy sets, which I liked as a, as a kind of as a way of thinking about these things. So a fuzzy set is a set that's defined by what's at the center of the set, not by where the edges of the set are and the edges of the set overlap, right? So you can imagine that, you know, I'm all, I'll write a little thing here. You could have martial arts, parkour, and dance, and they could look like, you know, can we see that? Three discrete yeah. bubbles, right? Mm -hmm. Or you could imagine that they're, you know, like some sort of Venn diagram where right. the bubbles all overlap. And so I think of parkour, let's say, as really, I think if you, if you, if you, overlap the whole parkour community you try to describe it not by the original intention or anything but just what people are actually doing it's just playing with uh, obstacles or playing in three-dimensional space right it's it's movement on obstacles and then you could say martial arts to me traditionally is something that is relevant to performance around combat or fighting or martial arts right or 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 military engagement and dance is um well, dance is hard, but I generally think of it as movement with, with music, but that but people can dance without music. So you could say it's expressive movement. Um, it's, it's movement that's about self-expression, let's say. And then you could see that, well, clearly being able to move over obstacles effectively has martial implications, but not everything that we do in parkour is about martial implications. So it is both a martial and not a martial art. And in the same way, uh, absolutely parkour is self-expressive. Right. And you can do it and perform it with music. And then when you connect it to music, you connect it to the aesthetic aspects of, uh, of dance. I think that gets really interesting or with partnering, right? Yeah. Partnering gets very, very fun and interesting. So, uh, at our sessions, like yesterday, I trained with my, my senior student, Robert, and we, we did some contact improv dancing. We did some, uh, some, some light, uh, kickboxing sparring we did some uh some pad work some muay thai pad work and then we did a bunch of parkour and we also played with balls and did a bunch of shit right um sounds like a good day <laughs> yeah, that's that's sort of a typical training session for us but what we found is yeah there's these really interesting interplays between them like when i train with martial artists they're always surprised by my ability to take space right because the explosiveness and the imagination that I have for space that comes from parkour, yeah. it allows you know it allows me to move in ways that are unexpected for a martial yeah. art. Because exactly. I've cultivated that same elasticity, and uh, and then what I what I found with dance is that as a as a means to understand rhythm and connection to the environment and exploration of the environment, it's extraordinary, and to get people out of. Um, one of my big criticisms of the parkour community is that we spend too much time in the volitional mind, right? And this is something that I think connects to your work around parkour and Ori, and we'll have to dig deep into that, but there's this distinction between volitional and reflexive. Volitional is movement where you decide exactly what you're going to do. So like, I'm going to do a round off backhand spring backflip. That's a volitional sequence, right? Um, 
this guy is kicking at my head and I'm going to duck under it is a, a reflexive sequence, right? One of the big problems in teaching people falls is you generally, most people teach volitional falling when falls are by definition reflexive and you have to, you have to make that gap. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so I've been talking for a while, but I, I wanted to tell you the story because I thought it was really interesting. This, this year I was teaching um, with my friend Simon Thacker in, in Australia and he, just by a weird coincidence, he ended up introducing a lot of like the basic material for how to start overcoming obstacles that I would use. And so I was like, these people weren't quite ready maybe for some of my advanced material, but I didn't know how to, to get an entry point for them. But what I've been doing a lot in my own practice is basically turning on music and moving to the beat and thinking of, of dance is basically just um, weight transfers with beat or weight transfers in relationship to music. And then how do I transfer my weight in a more three-dimensional space, right? Is where I'm incorporating the parkour. And I found that taps into some really interesting mental spaces. But I, I never felt comfortable teaching it because I have a very little ba dance background. But I was like, well, I'm just gonna throw this at these students. And so I had to like borrow somebody else's music and, 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 and uh, player and got this going. And it was like magic happened. Like these people were tapping into the ability to, to control complex movements and, and generating patterns that are really hard to teach people to do. And there was a few women in particular who came up to me afterwards and said they're very intimidated by the idea of trying parkour. But as soon as it's framed as a type of dance, they were able to, 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 to just fall in love with moving through an obstacle course. Hmm. Nice. And uh, so, yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And so I, I wanted to just share that with you because I thought it would be interesting to you. But I, I, I see the same connection that you're seeing there between these things and mm -hmm. you can play with them. Um, awesome. And I think it's funny because I've, I've gone and called myself something, given myself another name, a new box to play in. Whereas you're yeah. really in some ways still, still, still playing with all the same themes, but just holding within the parkour. So how, how have you... Tell me more about how you've, what have you seen that, that dance gives you in parkour? Have you been able to incorporate it with your students? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I will sometimes do a dance warm up. Um, I'll throw on some music and really expose, you know, a lot of advanced parkour people who think they're so good with their bodies. I'll, I'll show them, you know, they still have a lot to learn. You know, you'll they'll look so goofy. <laughs> <laughs> trying to do certain dances but um you know in our coaching certifications i'll, I'll often teach that but uh I remember. I don't yeah i gotta just say i remember um <laughs> at the last when i did your certification you guys had marlo fiskin teach us twerking oh my god yes <laughs> that was a good time yeah, yeah, if anyone do doesn't know who marlo is we'll try to get her on this podcast too she's awesome but you're good yeah. more on dance yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, if you can't twerk, then your your parkour skills need some work. It's basically what you're saying <laughs> that like you need to be able to move your body in all situations. Yeah, that's but uh, that that's basically it for me with dance. Is I I feel like I learn more positions and that my body can make, giving me more tools, more options, and that it has informed my uh, falling skills. It's allowed me to be more creative and maybe with like an odd shape or a weird, weird obstacle. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I know this dance move that fits here. And so, yeah, yeah. And also I think 
parkour, my, my form of parkour, which is I like to haul ass. I like to, you know, go really fast. Has caused me over the years to be a little bit stiffer, which might be a good thing when you're trying to transfer momentum and be really fast. But when it comes to dance, like I find myself very limited. And so now dance is helping me expand my mobility, um, which definitely plays a role in parkour as well. So yeah, that's kind of what dance offers for me at this point to parkour at least. That's interesting. One thing I've noticed is martial artists and parkour athletes tend to become very kyphotic and internally rotated in the shoulders. And I think it's a, well, you know, that's a defensive position, right? Yeah. I think it's also a defensive position relative to like big, scary concrete blocks approaching you at high speed. I think there's a tendency to want to sort of take all the, 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 the vulnerable parts of the body and get them kind of collapsed into the, away from, you know, covered by the, the, um, the big parts of the body, but we lose some ease and we lose the ability to be as relaxed and then as powerful as possible when we're always mm-hmm. in that habitual posture. So I often talk to parkour athletes or guys who I see come from the martial arts background, especially the parkour, and say like, you know, try to move like a dancer. Mm-hmm. Move like a dancer. And I think going and taking some dance and just learning to release, there's something really safe about like playing with the floor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, without with just human speeds, this is something that I've started to notice um, that is almost a little scary, but I'm really excited for this, is that it's just human-created speeds, so no two-story drops, no bicycles involved, just the human body on flat ground. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to see glimpses of the ability to be completely invincible. And I never thought I would have used the word invincible. Like, in early in parkour, you know, we... Just, we didn't want to encourage people to ever think that way because then you'd get hurt. Yeah, yeah. But uh, some of my advanced kids that I've been teaching for many years now, you could almost like a cat, you could just throw them up in the air and they know how to enter and exit the ground with so many different tools when it comes to falling that they're totally fine. And I've you know done drills with them where I try to push them into learning new weird movements and um, stringing them together. And these guys are insane now. They're, it's almost like you can't hurt them. They're anti-fragile for sure. Yeah. So. Yeah, everything is anti-fragile to a point, right? You stick your foot in a hole and it can be a bad day. But um, yeah, that's why, uh, yeah, just flat ground, <laughs> human speeds. There are totally so many other things that could change. Yeah, but, uh, but no, I do think that, that we're barely tapping, right? What humans are capable of. Oh my God, yeah. The way that, the way that parkour has progressed already like we couldn't have imagined five years ago what people are doing now no. when, you, when you look at jared nahulu who's one of your students i imagine and um nate weston and these guys who are you know swinging uh, doing a swing and passing over another bar eight feet wide <laughs> coming down and landing on a precision on the other side on a rail it's, I mean, it's insane like we just can't yeah. imagine that and that i don't think that that's the end of what's possible right right I think human beings are extraordinarily adaptive creatures and we are, we're the, we're the, you know, this generation is the nadir of human physical potential, right? We've, we've gone as far as we can in the direction of decline. And so our baseline of what's possible is so low. <laughs> what if we co- uh, cultivated a culture of movement that's as robust as our culture of, you know, computer engineering? Yeah, I was actually talking with uh, Callum Powell about what we predict 
yeah. uh, the, you know, parkour and all these things converging really like, again, it's weird to use the term parkour because really it's just a converging of all these different movement practices. Where do we see that going in five, 10 years? And based on what we just experienced over the last decade, I, again, I don't think we're going to be able to fathom what people are able to do, but my philosophy is that for this next phase, we will have to depart the natural selection phase. Like we, we're not gonna have anyone five stories off the ground striding across the tops of little poles without a strong, strong ability to adapt to almost any situation that could go wrong. Uh, and so I think that we're gonna see stuff that we can't fathom now, but now falling will be an absolutely necessary part of every person's practice that's gonna go into that frontier and explore that. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah. I think I, I like this analogy of mapping things out, mapping all the ways that things can be controlled and learning the control variables. Um, uh. You know, it more and more efficiently allows us to perform and in ways that are unimaginable when you don't understand the higher order variables to control. Yeah. It's, and it's so, you save so much more time. Um, if you focus on that in your early training, because you think about all the injuries, like if you were to add up over 10 years of some person's practice, even if it was just three major injuries over that 10 years, how much time were they sitting out um, and then had to work back to their level of ability? Um, how much money did that cost them? Like the div huge divots that those injuries can take out of a person's life when really you can just focus on learning these, these correct falling techniques and how to adapt to undershooting, overshooting these things. And my God, like the, the payback, the ROI on that over 10 years is insane. You're going to be a completely different person, so much stronger, more capable. Um, so that's what I'm excited to see is our communities really adopt these things for early students. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that's a good segue now to, um, to Randori, right? So <laughs> yeah. at the beginning of the, of, the, of the interview, I was talking about the fact that we seem to, to, to study the same things along, along the same time, right? So yeah, yeah. I was studying breakfalls, you were studying Ukemi. Um, and then I got into this idea of aliveness applied to parkour, right? How do we get out of that volitional movement and into reactive movement that's adaptive to the environment and to other people messing with us? Can you, yeah. you can do a con vault. Can you do it when someone's chasing you? Can you do it when you're chasing somebody? You know, can you do it when the environmental variables change? And that's what I call right. the lines, um, from my martial arts school, of, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu from uh, straight blast gym. And then I, I ran into you and you had this whole concept of parkour randori, which was very similar. And then later we both got into dance around the same time, but let's talk yeah, about what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> I know for two guys who are so dissimilar. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, so, uh, so yeah, tell me what parkour randori means to you, and kind of what, where you've gone with that practice, and how you see it applying to this this broader philosophy of how we of what we should be aimed at in movement practice. Yeah, yeah, I think um, similarly as you just explained, I noticed when I looked at the parkour community, you know, what people, how people are actually training, even though people would talk about being prepared, like I do parkour to be able to jump into an emergency situation. You know, you'd hear a lot of talk, but if you looked at the way a lot of people were training, they were doing maybe isolated techniques, maybe a combo, 
Uh, maybe they made a mistake halfway through and they would just stop what they're doing and go back to the start. Um, you know, it was very controlled, like you said, volitional movement. They knew it was on the other side of walls. Um, there was no pressure or chaos around them. And I just realized that for all this talk, the training wasn't matching up. And I asked myself the question, you know, what, where does that rabbit hole go? What if we did actually train to match this talk of being prepared for life's challenges? So uh, through that question, I just started studying, um, even using myself as a guinea pig in a lot of different ways, which was extremely dangerous. And actually par <laughs> parkour Kimmy is a, is a foundational for this because when you get into this territory where you're introducing new variables and you're having to make decisions at sprinting speeds on the fly while you're gathering other information, like that's incredibly dangerous. I don't recommend for anyone who hasn't been doing parkour for a while. Um, but the reason I was able to safely guinea pick myself is because of my ability to fall, because I definitely took some spills during that time. And, that, and I started to realize how dangerous it really could be. Um, so through that experience of putting myself um, through different tests and reading various sources, watching videos, actually studying real emergency situations, I realized that we were neglecting certain things. And what my goal was is to kind of string all those things together, whether it's like specific technique types or drills that can help you develop the reactions that you need. Um, even just knowing where to look at the right times for gathering information. Um, all these things I tried to tie into a single project where I could teach maybe um, someone who doesn't have parkour skills, um, at least some basics, so they can have an idea of what they should integrate in their training at what levels to make it safe. Um, and so I haven't had as much time to put into that as I have parkour Kimmy. Um, and actually I should say this as well, the Rondori is a word from Japanese martial arts as well. Yeah. And the whole concept is, um, that's kind of like the sparring phase of training. You know, you've learned your isolated punches. Uh, maybe you've got some combos under your belt. But now with Rondori um, in an Aikikai Aikido situation, you've got multiple attackers. You don't know what anyone's going to do. And you're just reacting. Um, and so I wanted to, once again, give a nod to martial arts and my influence through martial arts and call it parkour randori to kind of give this feeling, like you said, of live training. This is almost like the sparring element. You know, you've, you've got the isolated techniques, you've integrated them, but can you really improvise these techniques in complex emergency situations? That would, that's that whole sparring element of training. Very cool. Yeah. You've, uh, you, not having kids, um, <laughs> they can elements of this a little bit further than me. Um, you're telling me last time we hung about uh, breaking into nightclubs to uh, test out your work. All sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, it's all for science. I this is you know breaking into nightclubs for science. That's yeah, yeah. I wouldn't do any of this stuff unless unless it was. Um, but yeah, I've had <laughs> I've had some hilarious um, real life examples where I got to see this stuff play out. Um, and, and outside of some of these real life experiences that were really cool to watch because like you said, this is reactionary. So after all this talk, where are these techniques? And you get to actually watch, the, you're almost a, an observer at that point in some of these really intense situations. Um, you're just watching the decisions you make and uh, what your body ends up doing. And it was it's been really cool for me. But also, even before that, we would go out just a few friends and we would play games lots of games um, things again i don't recommend to anyone who doesn't have a high level of movement skill or falling abilities but we would in the dark be running through the city trying to tag each other 
um, with a certain set of rules and that can create some gnarly situations for sure um, you know when you're taking it to a high level and you're really trying to win those games um, so yeah yeah I have had the opportunity to see that stuff in my life for sure what's your favorite story favorite experience <laughs> all right uh, I guess I can talk about this publicly <laughs> well you, you you brought up the nightclub um, I'll try to tell this in kind of a, a quicker fashion uh, so um, Brandon Douglas and I were uh, just just for fun I mean it was free to get in whatever I'm pretty sure um, just for fun trying to roof mission into a nightclub just to see if we could and uh, we scouted it out well we didn't make a sound it was beautiful teamwork um, and we got to the top and it was just a quick lazy vault into the rooftop bar and we did it pretty smoothly but uh, I think a customer or someone from across the bar caught a glimpse of us and tipped off the, the bouncer. And so as we were running down the stairs, um, we looked over our shoulders and saw the bouncer come through the door. And at that moment, it was, it was really interesting. It was like just a shot of adrenaline, boom, just through, I could feel it like surge through my body. And Brandon and I both knew like what had to be done. And so we just immediately, I think like vaulted this railing, dropped an entire stair set to land to roll and we're running through this club. And as we're doing this, um, <laughs> bouncers, there, there are a lot of bouncers in this club, just see us running and start peeling off the walls. So we're just gaining more <laughs> people chasing us. Sharks and Minnows. Uh, what's that? It reminds me of the game, Sharks and Minnows. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And uh, so it just, it just kept getting worse, kept getting out of hand. And uh, we make our way to the front door and there's a chain there that we, um, you'll like this hurdled because you're <laughs> the advocate of the hurdle. Um, and the front, the front bouncer didn't even know how to react. We were moving at such high speed. We didn't give him time to think. He just like let us hurdle past him. Um, so we get out and, you know, it was nothing too intense. Yeah, we like dropped some stairs and, we, we hurdled a chain. It wasn't too intense, but we thought we were free. So we were kind of like laughing and we had um, maybe gotten a little too comfortable. With and so we're, we're kind of like laughing and lightly jogging. And then we look over our shoulders and like the worst character, the one you don't want to see is the Navy SEAL looking motherfucker who's just <laughs> sprinting. Like you, you know, this guy's going to cat be where we're at in less than two seconds. It was terrifying. Uh, and so we immediately went back to full on sprint down this block. Um, we, you know, there were probably like five people behind us, but this guy was definitely ahead of the pack. And uh, Brandon actually pulled a pretty sly move. I thought was um, cool. He crossed traffic right before all these cars closed in. So there's no way to follow him, but he was a little bit ahead of me. So I had to cut a left turn um, and then everyone just followed me. <laughs> And so uh, something really happened around here um, where I was running so fast that as I passed someone who apparently knew me, my name had the Doppler effect. It was like, Amos. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm not only trying to get out of this situation that has gotten hairy fast, but I have no idea who this person is. It could be like a parent 
of one of the kids I teach. And this is what they think I do outside of the gym. Like <laughs> they see me in my normal life and I'm being chased by a Navy SEAL and a bunch of guys. Um, so I cut, cut left again. They're still on, on my tail. And probably the worst thing that I possibly could have seen was uh, up in this alleyway. It was being blocked by a cop car and a cop sitting <laughs> and I'm, I'm running directly towards the cop. And I'm just like, how is this possible? Like, I'm totally getting sandwiched here. This is crazy. Um, and so the cops like getting out of his car and I realize like now I've got like another person chasing me. I cut a right. And this was kind of a cool moment where I was just like watching my body react. I didn't really think much of this, but I just dropped this massive stairwell to land, to roll through the door of another club. <laughs> I I come out of my role into a sprint right as I see another bouncer who's checking IDs and he's just like oh wait and I fly through that club and I even at one point once again I'm seeing more bouncers peel off the wall yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing people see me and then start running mm -hmm. and so now I have like two clubs of bouncers and a cop chasing me and you know not even five minutes ago, not even two minutes ago, things were totally chill. Like things got out of hand pretty fast. Um, so I cut up the stairs of this place. And at this point, um, this is probably the most interesting thing about the experience is that I've always thought, you know, we should train for a certain amount of endurance, depending on, you know, what you need these skills for. But personally, I like a 90 second to two minute window. Yeah. You should be able to go full force. Um, you know, it's hard, it's very difficult to go full force longer than that. Physiological. Um, start to see that too. Yeah, exactly. But I think that's kind of a good target because when it comes to different, you know, things I've read or videos I've watched in emergency situations, oftentimes, if you can at least go extremely hard for that window of time and then get a quick rest and then be back at it again, that's a, an effective approach. And so it was cool to see like how I dealt with this two minutes or so. And uh, I definitely felt when I was going up those stairs, I knew that I have like five fresh bouncers on me and I'm starting to taper off. Yeah, yeah. So I had to make a, a decision to like figure out another solution here. And so right as I cut out the front of this club, I took an immediate left, baseball slided um, under these stairs and just curled into a fetal position. I wasn't completely hidden, mm -hmm. but I was hidden enough and I realized that I just needed to not move and try to catch my breath as much as possible. And it was almost like a movie, like a, a lot of the bouncers and I think maybe police officer, I, I couldn't tell that their voices were hilarious. They came up out of this club and it was just like, which way do you go? You go that way, I'll go this way. Like it was like almost like a movie. And so they split up and go looking separate ways. And the whole time I'm just like thinking, I'm running, trying to refresh my mind of all the different Brazilian jiu-jitsu techniques I know, like Aikido techniques, like, okay, if he grabs my right shoulder, I'm just kind of trying to refresh. Okay, what most likely are they going to do when they grab me? And how can I cleverly get loose and then put in the second wind run? Yeah. And uh, so they didn't find me back in that space. So I just changed my clothes. And uh, a few of the bouncers actually stayed at the front of the club and mm -hmm. just started talking and having a conversation. And so, um, you know, I, ch I chilled out for a little bit. I recovered completely, changed my clothes, and then just walked right past the bouncers that were chasing me. Um, 
and then met up with Brandon and just we laughed our asses off at like how crazy out of control that got so quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, both got away so oh actually the craziest part of the story this is this is funny this is an update two years later maybe even more i'm hanging out with this guy and he says oh yeah i work at this one club and it was the club that this happened at yeah. i'm like oh really how long you been working there <laughs> he's like oh like five years now i was like huh you guys ever chase people you ever have any like uh good good bouncer chases in there and he's like dude let me tell you about this crazy <laughs> story. And it was so funny because over the years it had been embellished. Like we had been turned into legends. No one knew who we were. So it was just like among the bouncers, they actually hired a parkour guy after this <laughs> happened. They actually found a parkour guy and hired him as a bouncer. So he tells me this story that's so embellished. He's like, yeah, these guys were straight up ninjas. Like they, it, you know, he was giving details that definitely didn't happen. Like it was over the top. And um, I did find out that the crazy guy was a Navy SEAL after all. <laughs> he actually was um, in training to do that. And uh, yeah, at the end of the conversation, I just like casually threw it out there like, cool. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> and he, he had like been thinking about this for years, I guess, because we're in, we're in a totally different situation. This is years later. And his initial reaction was to grab me. He's like, <laughs> finally I got you but then I think he realized like once he like tensed up that like he can't do anything about it at this point <laughs> and so he went from like thinking he needed to grab me to like oh my god you're a G and like slap my head it's just like so stoked to meet me and um yeah so wild time learned a lot about and you know what my endurance was like how it feels to be just shot with adrenaline like you don't get a chance someone just shoots you in the head with adrenaline in that moment and what it's like to watch your body and just you don't really make decisions it's almost like falling um and throughout that entire experience there wasn't a single point i felt like i really made a conscious decision it was just like oh that's not good that's not good oh cop is involved now oh i'm now in another club i'm not going to show this guy my id because i'm sprinting <laughs> um yeah it was just watching myself deal with one bad thing after the other so what you're saying is if people really want to learn parkour the <laughs> run from some bouncers you really want to know you can do it <laughs> you should uh purposely put yourself no definitely not that's not an ideal way um but i think it's interesting because as as teachers you know like i didn't it's interesting because for years i never did any rooftop stuff because I was afraid of, of, of getting, you know, uh, cited for trespassing and ending up in the paper and being a bad representation of the community around me. So yeah, like yeah. My, my, my ability to deal with heights didn't start developing until I kind of left urban parkour and started training trees. So now yeah. like all, almost all the really scary high jumps that I've done have been from boulder to boulder, tree branch to tree branch. Yeah. And, uh, and then I found there's something really powerful to be learned when you're dealing with heights. Like I think there's some really profound lessons up there. Maybe it was a good thing. Absolutely. You know, I was like seven years into my practice before I even moved up into those areas. Um, but, but as, as explorers, as people on the edges of, of these things, as people trying to develop, you have to push yourself in ways, you know, like Eric Paulson's a famous martial artist. You know, he used to go to clubs that he knew were really rough so he could test things out. Right. This was before MMA. They didn't have that ability to, to step into the ring. And, right. 
you know, like I worked as a bouncer for, for three years. And so I got to have uh, a number of physical confrontations there. None of them that went really to, to like fist cuffs, just wrestling basically. Um, but I got to, to know that I had the, the wherewithal to, to push myself into those situations. But I think it's a really interesting thing for, for us to think about. Like, you know, we, sometimes we sanitize our practice because, because yeah, most people should never do that. Yeah. And the, the beautiful thing is I kind of see myself as a guinea pig for these ideas. Like what happens when you use these drills that I'm putting forward, you know, how does that play out in your life? But the nice thing is that you don't need those things. You don't need to put yourself in those situations, like go to clubs where you might have altercations um, with parkour, like even just some basic improvisational A to B drills can enhance so much your ability to have better reactions. Um, and, and again, like a lot of us aren't living lives where this is a probability. So I, I don't think people should be focusing on this. I'm not like so pure that I'm like, if you're not training like this, you're not doing parkour. I guess uh, more so I just, I find interest in it. And for people who do have lifestyles, maybe they work, uh, maybe they are Navy SEALs or they work in some way where they would need these skills, then maybe it's more interesting for them. But um, ultimately um, you can do this stuff very safely. You don't have to train at heights to get some of these skills, although testing yourself is important and maybe it'll happen for you. Yeah. But uh, a lot of these basic drills and skills um, will go a long way. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of content on Parkour Andori online. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting on a mountain of stuff with that, and I just haven't had the resources or time to really develop a lot of it. So a lot of that I do in workshops and seminars at this point, um, if people want access to that. Cool. Well, it's probably a good place, actually, for us to, to, to wrap up for today. It was really um, super fun to chat with you and yeah. uh, catch up after all these years. I think, you know, we still it's need to talk. Well, man. We've got, we've got lots of uh, stuff to talk about as far as methods and, and things. And um, so we'll have to do this again and, uh, and, and kind of cultivate more of these thoughts. But yeah, if yeah. people want to train with you, um, if they want to learn more about your stuff, if they want to uh, get on this, this break following course, um, how should they do that? Um, are you going to have links in the notes or? Yeah, yeah, I'll put links in the notes. Cool. Uh, so probably one of the easiest ways is uh, at this point, I've put together an online course for The Art of Falling. And that expresses my unifying theory of how all these different falling continuums fit together um, so that you can learn the isolated techniques, learn how to integrate them into drills and, and improvise them um, so that it's reactionary. Uh, and I put a ton of time and effort into that. And that can be found at parkouredu.org, um, where um, under our training programs, you'll find The Art of Falling. Um, also, you can find all my projects if you're interested in reading more about Parkour Rondori or um, my business, Apex School of Movement, um, my other company, Parkour Edu, various things like that. Uh, you can just go to amosrendao.com, A-M-O-S-R-E-N-D-A-O. Uh, and through those two places, you can find almost any um, thing you'd want and be able to contact me there. Cool. Well, thanks again for, for coming on, Amos. I look forward to, uh, to future conversations and uh, chasing around through the woods someday. Me too. <laughs> me too. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. 
Thank you for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes if you can. Finally, as we mentioned before the show, this is a listener-supported podcast, and if you want to have the most regular content, have the best guests on, and give you guys the best quality of audio and video, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you very much, and I look forward to sharing more with you guys soon.